Hello and welcome to Speak to a Lawyer. I am your host, Avi Charney. Join us on this podcast as we profile leading lawyers in all areas of law, those who have made a difference over decades of practice. As a younger lawyer, I noticed a seemingly massive gap between junior and senior lawyers. I wondered how the best lawyers in the city reached the pinnacle of their practices. Leaders of firms, consistently rated best lawyers, also known as game changers, rainmakers, precedent setters. I'm considering them professional superheroes with careers to emulate. Was it through hard work, grit and persistence? Perhaps a dose of luck and circumstance? I'm here to find out who these leading lawyers are, what they do and how they got to where they are today. Whether you are a younger lawyer yourself, law student or bystander interested in law, I'm sure that you will benefit from and enjoy the gems of wisdom we seek to uncover here. A bit of housekeeping, this podcast is CPD approved for one professionalism hour. Pretty cool, huh? And so are our guests. We have some great ones lined up for you with literally decades of experience. That's really the only requirement for being on this podcast. You have to have decades of experience. For technical reasons, we couldn't release the first few episodes chronologically, so excuse some references to previous episodes we may have, but you'll all be caught up very soon. Look forward to new episodes weekly. As our first guest on Speak to a Lawyer, the former head of Heenan Blakey, who, what do you know, now is writing a guidebook for younger lawyers, which is exactly, in all seriousness, what we need right now. Norm was kind enough to share the draft of his book with me, and there are so many useful tips and tricks. My conclusion is it is a must-read for those starting out and in their first few years of practice. I'm so excited to get into our discussion now with Norm. Welcome, Norm. Uh, I am so thrilled to have you based on your experience. You have such an interesting story. Um, I uh, read your book, Breakdown, and a uh, fascinating story just from the inside cover for those who don't know, although I suspect that a lot of my listeners will already know who you are. Uh, but for those who don't, you uh, founded the Toronto office of Heenan Blakey, which was one of Canada's leading law firms. You built an empire. Uh, I think you were there for 34 years. Uh, at its pinnacle, it had over a thousand employees. Uh, how many lawyers is that? Uh, at the height, we were just under 600 lawyers. I, uh, I think about wow. 575. That's unbelievable. Um, yeah, a lot of lawyers. Uh, it's an unbelievable story about uh, the firm that you tell uh, ultim- ultimately about its growth and then its falling, its demise. When I finished reading the book, I was left with this question, which I'm, if I may start with, uh, and I've been kind of waiting to ask this question, and I've also been super interested in your uh, development post Heenan Blakey, but th- the main question I was left with when I left when I finished reading the book was why someone after building up years of uh, expertise and experience and connections, something which all of us are striving for, you kind of made it to the pinnacle. Why would you decide to leave law and uh, pursue a different career? The short answer is it was time. 
uh, the longer answer <laughs> is uh, I made a promise to myself early on in practice that I would stay as long as I was having fun. And uh, while I built my practice in those early years, uh, you know, the first the first three or four years, I was I was a bit probably like most young lawyers, I was a bit in the wilderness trying to figure things out. About my fifth year, I started to get a hang of it, and then things just kind of took off for the next thirty years. Uh, and I, I, I did things I never imagined I, I would do. I had experiences, I, and I, I met people who uh, were just so extraordinary. I was very fortunate. Did a lot of really interesting things, and was having great. I was just having having the best time, uh, all, but always learning, always trying new things, always seeing if there was something that I didn't know how to do that I could learn how to do and then master. And uh, when I got to uh, the end of my reign as managing partner, which was about a year before the about fifteen months before the firm collapsed. I had pretty much uh, done it all, and I was scratching my head in terms of what do I do next, when do I do it, because the, the one thing you do discover as you're developing in your career, and this this goes as much for the young lawyers as for the, for anybody more senior, is in some respects there's no going backwards. So the notion that uh, you could be running a business hands-on for 15 years and then go back and do commercial transactions. Um, it, it, it is, you know, it, it's a huge step backwards, and I don't say that in a negative way. It's just a step backwards in your career. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always a person uh, who's always looking to to try and do something that I haven't done before. So I discovered that staying in law, I like there was no more going forward for me. Uh, particularly after the firm collapsed. So the first year out of being managing partner was very difficult because you're you're used to being in the center of everything, uh, making decisions, and, and you're running on adrenaline and you're making 100 decisions a day. And then suddenly you're, you're out of it, you're on the sidelines, you're, uh, I don't want to say ordinary partner because that makes it sound a bit ordinary, but the reality is you're no longer doing any of that. And it's... Uh, it's a life adjustment, and what what I discovered was happening to me, uh, partly in the last year of Hina Blakey, and certainly in my two years following in Denton's, was I was having less and less fun, and growing more and more bored. I guess is probably a good word, and it was time for a new challenge. And I understood, and my wife certainly helped me understand it, that. Uh, the new challenge had to be outside of the law. Now, that doesn't mean I don't keep a hand in it because I'm still mentoring and teaching and doing a little consulting, but I'm no longer providing legal services. That, that, I think I might be dangerous if I continue to do that. Uh, but it was it was really time to take on a new life challenge. That's so interesting. Uh, my first interview was with uh, Donald Carr, and he also went through a, a bit of a demise of uh, Goodman and Carr, but you uh, snagged the title from him, the greatest failure in Canadian in law firm history uh, in your in your book and Eddie thanks me for that whenever I run into it <laughs> very, very nice it's a, it's a title of pride I guess in a way yeah. hardly um, hardly but it, but if not for that I I don't know where I'd be today. right so in some respects uh, you, you have to find the silver linings in 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 the uh, the challenges and or disasters you face Absolutely. in life like you have to figure out how to pick yourself up and move on. And that was something I had no experience with in you know, 34 years. 
uh, sort of the progression was, I wouldn't say linear, but it was cer- certainly always on the upslope. And suddenly there was this crash and that you, I certainly had to add, add that into the, okay, what do I do next? How do I recover from this? How do I go, go on and how do most important, and it's a question every one of your listeners is going to have to ask throughout the career, is how do I redefine myself? Absolutely. And that was very courageous of you to take a whole new path. Um, which I'll, I'll let you speak about, but just based on what I know, uh, you know, you do a lot of consulting and, and teaching, but mainly you're an author of, of uh, a couple of books, this breakdown and, and now um, fiction books as well. And what I'm most interested is in your upcoming book, which we'll get to. If you'd like, you can uh, say a few words about it. Oh, no question. I'll promote it. Um, uh, well, first, the second book, uh, which is fiction, uh, is really uh, was really the next step in my journey, and and, and I think you, you just need to understand the sort of the process, and it, it's it kind of ties into uh, what I went through early in my legal career, and that is I wrote breakdown, and I assumed as a result I learned how to write books. I certainly had developed the habit of writing every day, and I didn't want to lose that, so. Uh, at my wife's suggestion, I decided I'd take a shot at writing some fiction. So I sat down, I read some Shakespeare, I walked in one day and I, and I said, I've got it. I'm going to write uh, Othello, the modern day lawyer, and see where that gets me. Uh, what I didn't realize at the time was how little writing fiction had to do with writing nonfiction. And when I sent it out, when I sent out a draft that I thought was reasonably good, to the editor who edited Breakdown. We got on the phone for well over an hour and we'd been working with each other for probably over two years at that point. And she very politely uh, took out the knife and just slammed it right between my ribs. And the line she used was, uh, a very workmanlike job for an amateur. And if you wanted to be well regarded as an amateur, this is certainly acceptable. And and I, I don't know if she knew uh, just how badly I would take that, but it took me a few days to recover. And then she gave me some theory to read and I, I began the task. But what I didn't realize when, when I set out on, on this journey of fiction was uh, that it was literally becoming an articling student all over again. There were all kinds of things I needed to learn about writing fiction. So I, yes, I knew how to write a story, like the story was always solid, but uh, all the kinds of things fiction uh, writers know how to do, which is how to write proper dialogue, uh, how to differentiate your, your characters, how to set your scenes, uh, how to make everything connect, how to make sure that your, your uh, characters are actually consistent. The nice, the nice thing about Breakdown was it followed the trajectory of one person who was me through the course of a career. So I was writing from complete knowledge Everything I did was consistent. It was just a question of writing my story. But when you're writing fiction and you're covering, uh, let's say, in in Odell's in the case of Odell's Fall, it's seven different characters. I what I didn't understand was I had to understand all of their lives before I could write a word that was that was legitimate. So, uh, you know, where did they go to school? What was their birth order? What do they like to eat for dinner? Uh, you know, what are their life events that have shaped them? And then you, then you put that in a cupboard and you start writing, then you can write them. So it was, you know, it took, so it took me, you know, four months to write the first draft of Odell's Fall and then four years to learn how to write it. 
And by the time I published it, which, which was last October, uh, I felt I'd finally, I was finally on the cusp of making partner uh, in terms of my learning. And then uh, sort of in that course and subsequent to that, I wrote the second novel, which is uh, the current name is Ophelia. I hope it'll be out sometime in the next six months. It's just out for uh, a final polish edit. And I, I can say now that when I sit down to write a scene, I know what I'm doing. I understand why I'm doing it. I know why, you know, I, I, I've taken that step forward, as you say, to partnership where you've, you've learned all kinds of new things. And both of these fictions are murder mysteries. Uh, they twist, they turn. It, it, it's an inter- interesting plot. And I'll, you know, sometimes sit down and just take out some, some prose that I've written either last year or a few months ago and, and read it. Uh, to see to see how it reads and I say well I can't believe I wrote that this actually sounds like uh, an author who knew what he's doing wrote it so I, I can I can see the re- progression is there the responses have been good the reviews on the book the first novel have been excellent and I'm very excited to release the next one so very long answer to a very short question no, so. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry no, no, about no. that and it's, it's really <laughs> unbelievable and impressive how you've managed to reinvent yourself and go from you know the pinnacle in one career to starting as an articling student as you put it at the very bottom learning how to write and, and do the proper research and then ultimately be successful in that second career as well really uh, impressive and brave to do that um, just to ask you are you completely a writer what kind of involvement do you have in law firms right now and and I ask because you know there's you, you gain this uh, amazing experience leading a firm and um, the way you describe the demise of Heenan Blakey is the the leadership just didn't work together there were two leaders instead of one for whatever reason it didn't work question is have have there been a firm perhaps that came to you and said you know you're not a lawyer anymore but you have leadership experience would you come in as a non-lawyer ceo and run our firm is that an option these days in the big firms it's it's not something i have applied for uh largely because that's not something i'm interested in anymore I, i i would actually rather uh uh, you know, I call it building my library, but I, I would rather at this point in, in my career be known as a, an author and a speaker and a teacher uh, than a CEO uh, of a law firm. I, I sit on a couple of boards, so that keeps me, keeps my toe dipped into the business waters. Uh, I do some strategic advice for uh, Smart and Bigger. Uh, and that's again from time to time. Uh, I'm an executor of an estate the, for a family business, so I, I've got enough things to keep me busy. But I don't want full-time responsibility for anybody's business anymore. Uh, I might, and, and part of it is uh, a driving need I have to give back to the industry. So you know, my latest project is. Uh, I, I call it a manual, but it, it's a book. It'll be a short book. It's designed for uh, for your audience, for young lawyers, for lawyers who are on their way. So any, anywhere from law student to uh, to lawyer on the cusp That's of partnership. Uh, and it's a it's a it, I don't want to call it a how to. Uh, it's more like what are the soft skills that you need in order to have a successful career as a lawyer? What are the things no one else is teaching? Uh, or that you'd have to go out and hire an expensive coach to send you in the right direction. I decided to take my experiences, organize them, write them down. I've interviewed about 
a dozen or so professionals at various ages and stages and demographics. And I'm uh, just putting the final touches on a book that will go out and, and it's really designed to, for a young lawyer to pick it up and say, okay, here's where I am uh, to get where I need to be and to go where I need to go. What do I have to do? And you can pick it up and in a few hours, uh, pick up the lessons that you need. That sounds extremely useful. Can you go through perhaps the table of contents, high level, and then we can pick out a few topics if you Oh, sure. Um, it's funny because uh, my thesis is it, it starts, it, it begins with two factors, two key factors, which you don't really think about. And certainly nobody in law school ever tells you about. And one is that, uh, A, it's a service business. Uh, and, and, and therefore you will succeed based on how well you service your clients. Uh, second, it's a sales business, which would, would come as a surprise to most people who go into law. I think most of the, most of the lawyers tend to be low risk. Uh, they go there because they don't see themselves as entrepreneurs. And the one thing you discover at some point or other in your career is that if you want to succeed at it, you have to become uh, entrepreneurial may be a stretch, but you have to understand that you are selling a product and the product is you. So, uh, so it starts with service and sales and then we get into, and then I, what I do is uh, move into subjects that are of key concern, which is communication, uh, both uh, oral and written, uh, how to get through an interview so that you might actually get hired for a job. Uh, once you do get hired, what are the things you have to do in order to begin to build your practice? So I have a base level, how do you build your practice uh, section? Then we look at uh, how law firms work. Uh, what are the key issues uh, that apply if you want to go in-house? Uh, what's the big deal about the billable hour and how does it drive uh, behavior in the industry? And how is it going to drive your career? And is there any way to get her, to get away from it? Uh, and then I, uh, what are the psychological issues uh, that will drive your entire career? Uh, what are the things you need to be able to master? Uh, how do you get over? How do you deal with fear? How do you deal with taking on new tasks that you don't know how to do? Easy at the beginning of your career, much more difficult as you progress. And we go, we go through how how the various professionals that I've interviewed and based on my own experience, what are the things you have to push yourself through in order to become successful? And I close the book with uh, what I call a master's class. And this is for lawyers who are already on their way, but it's a little bit higher level uh, strategy uh, in terms of how to take themselves from where they are to where they need to be. I look forward to reading that, and uh, if you want to send me a draft, I'm I'm happy to review it because I can't wait to sink my teeth into that. Yeah, you're you're on. <laughs> that sounds good. I mean, I I'm as a solo practitioner, I have a lot of these practical issues, which uh, could probably learn a lot from that book, um, or, or or whatever you you called it. Um, as as mm -hmm. uh, general advice, I'd, I'd like to get into more specific, but just one uh, follow-up question based on your book. And this is, again, something people go into perhaps on their, uh, when they're starting out on their own or, or maybe at any point in their career is uh, rent. Um, looking for office space, you mentioned in your uh, book how one of the issues and 
perhaps precipitated the, the demise was the exorbitant rent you paid uh, downtown. And uh, when you were first looking for space, perhaps you're looking for somewhere a bit cheaper up north. Uh, you know, based on your knowledge of the Toronto legal community, um, I'm curious to know how important is, you know, a Bay Street address for, let's say, tax purpose, you're a tax lawyer or a corporate lawyer. Um, I, you know, my experience, it ultimately depends on the, the clients you want to have. And if they want, uh, you know, you to be more accessible uptown with free parking. But do you have a, a perception of, um, you know, starting out where, where someone should look to set up shop is a Bay Street address? Uh, does it mean anything? Or uh, are there other considerations? I find it ironic that you're asking me this question now in this environment where everyone's working yeah. from home and discovering uh, to their great, perhaps surprise, that it doesn't seem to matter where you're located. Your clients want you because they want you. Um, are there... Are, are there major institutional clients that, you know, that want a seven sister firm and a Bay Street address? The answer to that is still probably yes. Do they care whether those lawyers are giving them advice from their basement? I think the last four months have indicated absolutely not. They couldn't care less. And I, I believe the industry is in the process, and this is at, at a macro level, of coming to the same conclusions that the smaller independent firms came to a few years ago, which is you don't need to be in an office. Uh, you know, at one point, in fact, when we were looking at sort of the, the, the next Heenan Blakey experiment when we thought it might be possible as the firm was collapsing. One of the things we looked at was stepping away from Bay Street and high rent, uh, perhaps just renting some showy boardroom space, which is one tenth of the space we needed. And, and most of us working virtually with some offices to come into if you needed to be downtown. But uh, how many how many of your the real the, your starting question is, you know, how many of your clients are downtown? Uh, and that's one and two. And this is the point I get to in my book, in the, in the book that's coming. And that is that uh, if you have your clients coming to visit you at your office, you're, you've already made a mistake. If you're going to visit your client, you either, you know, you do it on the phone. You, now you do it technologically through a Zoom meeting or, a, or however you want to do it. Or you go, or, or when things open up again, you go visit them. You're, you're going to get, you know, a thousand times more mileage out of a client visit than you are going to having them come to your office. And I think you know, what, what's happened is the, uh, the industry has been carried on inertia for the last 30 years which is clients come to see lawyers. And, uh, and I believe we're, we're, we, in the last few, few months, we have completely turned that on its head. And one would expect that the smart firms uh, and the nimble firms are going to understand your clients don't need to come to see you. You just have to figure out how to get to them. They don't care. Uh, the ones who need uh, a pedigree because the, because their institution needs a pedigree. Again, they're uh, they're going to go to the firm because they have to, because they need the pedigree. But again, are they going to care that the firm has anything more than you know than uh, five hundred square uh, five hundred square foot boardroom or 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 maybe fifteen thousand square feet downtown for when they need it, as opposed to three hundred thousand feet. Uh, 
the other thing is the other great irony is think about it when think about the, the larger firms with the big boardroom spaces when clients come in whether it's for receptions or even for meetings they're not meeting in your office they're meeting in your boardroom space so really what you need is boardroom access on on bay street if you want to continue with the facade uh, but your office doesn't need to be there you don't need to be there uh, and your client, frankly, couldn't care less as long as they're mm-hmm. getting great service. So it sounds like the playing field has largely been leveled based based on this, the fact that everyone's virtual and uh, it's kind of based on an online presence more than a physical presence then. Uh, yeah, in part, it will depend on how long this thing lasts uh, and how far we get into changing habits. I mean, the one thing I've discovered in terms of changing habits is it only takes three weeks in either right. direction. And, uh, you know, part of this, certainly for the larger firms, is going to be driven by if, if you're on, if you have 10 years left on your long-term lease, you're stuck. So it's all very nice to say everybody's working at home, but you're looking at all this empty space you're paying for. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to change? Um, uh, and the, uh, probably the most important issue is how, how, are you going to, how are you measuring currently the productivity? Uh, against what it is when people are coming to the office. And as long as productivity gets close to uh, balance, I think what you'll see is a slow offload of, of space and, and firms not, not necessarily mm-hmm. renewing. Do you see any uh, glaring changes that either will stick or will not stick from the past few months, COVID, and specifically changes in the, the legal industry? Uh, I would say... Um, there are probably a few areas where things have, uh, have changed probably, uh, for the future. Uh, one is the, the, the way in which we, uh, I, 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 the way in which we communicate with one another, uh, the way in which, uh, we use, we use and need support to get what we need. I think that that has shifted dramatically, um, so that the, the the costs of providing the legal services, all the all the extras, uh, and I think ultimately uh, there's been the the there's been an acceleration in the drive towards technology. So whereas it's funny because I spoke at a conference uh, last summer, uh, and it was a sort of technology in the legal industry conference. And uh, the the theme of my speech was lawyers are very lawyers and law firms are very slow adapters. So all these all these technology providers were they were all expressing frustration about how many meetings it took with a law firm to get them to even consider. And once they considered how long it took them to adapt and things were going on for years and years. Uh, but you look at what's 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 been driven out of the last few months, uh, which is huge technological innovation that everyone has to adapt, uh, apart from anything else, to deal with the security issues of having so many people work at home. So all the impediments to getting to where you need to get to uh, have been have been crossed. So we're there. We're working from home. The investments in the technology to allow that to happen have all been made. There's no going back on that. And now the law firms can look at it and say, okay, where do, it, it's, not, it's, it's not going to be, how do we go backwards? It's going to be, how do we 
use all this investment because th this is now the new, I, I don't want to call it normal because it's not normal, but this is the new status quo. And based on this status quo, uh, how do we change? And the, I, I think the interesting irony, and it's yet to be tested, but the interesting irony is uh, lawyers are slow to, lawyers and law firms are slow to adapt to change. But once they have changed, my guess is they're slow to adapt to anything new from this. So I think there'll be a very slow movement away from what we see right now. And uh, the smart and the nimble firms will continue to move this ahead and make their investments. I, I think the notion of what law firms are investing in right now, what lawyers should be investing in, has changed in a way that without the black swan of COVID, uh, would have taken yeah. 20 years. It's, it's nice to hear that. I mean, when I was building a little bit from the ground up, I embraced technology in every facet of the business, literally. And, uh, you know, even even Zoom meetings, like it's nice to hear that people are finally catching on because it's so it's so user-friendly. All these tools, not only Zoom, but but everything. Um, so, so tech is a tool that I don't think is going anywhere and it should be embraced more and more because it ultimately facilitates things and brings the cost down. So... Good to hear that. It does in theory. It does in theory. But I would say if you'd asked if you'd asked me this question six months ago, I would have said it's, it's just and I, and I said at the conference, it's just not going to happen. It's not nearly going to happen at the pace that it needs to. And we, we've mm -hmm. had an accelerator. So mm -hmm. all bets are off. Nice. It's a new world. So I want to. This, this is a fascinating conversation. I want to get into uh, a bit of the nitty gritty about your new book. Um, like I said, excited to read. You said, uh, you know, starting out, lawyers don't really know about the service and sales part of the business. Someone starting a law firm uh, today, yesterday. What what would you tell them? Call call it a recent uh, law school grad or a recent call to the bar and he wants to hang up his own shingle. What, what are you telling him? <laughs> yeah. After good luck. Um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's interesting because I'm, I'm, I've just rewritten the chapter today on like, how do you do yeah. it? How do you build it? Uh, and I was thinking, is it sequential? Is it, you have, you have to learn new skills. You have to learn how to deal with clients. You have to learn how to network. Uh, does that go in order? And the conclusion I finally came to is uh, no, and that's why I'm rewriting the chapter right now. I actually see it as a as a cycle, and you can't approach one without, particularly if you're opening up your hanging up your own shingle, you can't approach one without approaching all. So uh, I divide it into a few categories. One, uh, obviously, there's so many things to learn, so you have to develop your expertise. Uh, two, that expertise has to be as niche as mm -hmm. possible. So the, the more you're competing, the more you are indistinguishable from anyone else, the less likely you are to succeed on the pace you'd like to succeed at. And therefore, so you have to figure out, you know, what's my special mm -hmm. offer? Is it an expertise I have, uh, which is going to be hard in the absence of clients? Uh, it's and which gets you to the next part, which is once you have clients, then you have your you have your petri dish that you can that you can grow from, that you can learn from. You'll make you will obviously make mistakes, but as you begin to work, you will begin to learn things. You will have the opportunity to develop an expertise. Um, as you're developing that expertise, you need to 
market it internally and externally and internally is with your clients. So we started this with a, um, uh, with a, how, how have we turned the industry on its ears? And I, and I said pretty early on, we have this notion that clients come to visit, visit us. And that's the notion uh, that has to be turned on its head. If you want a successful career, you have a client, don't tell them to come to you. Uh, you know, when, when circumstances permit, once again, go visit them because it allows you to expand your network from the contact who you're talking to, to people that that contact uh, knows and works with. And, uh, you know, I've been a big believer that the, the key person in any organization is the receptionist. Mm-hmm. And if you can get on on side with the receptionist, you pretty much have access to almost anybody mm-hmm. in the organization, even people who you couldn't figure out how to how you could possibly get in front of. Make that person your ally if, if you want to go. So you have to get in front of people. You have to develop an expertise. Uh, if it's in a particular industry, use that. Use your client contact. You know that's why. Uh, you know, showing up at networking events cold is, uh, I'd say, is pretty much a complete waste of time. But showing up at a networking event where you have a client going or an industry event, uh, to my mind, is a way better use of your time than, for example, going to a, a bar association event where all you're meeting are the competitors, unless you're going to learn something or unless you think you might get a referral from another lawyer. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's so it, 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 there are a lot of things to... To consider, but it's how are you spending your time? Where are you getting out to when you're not working? Uh, your best source of new work is from your existing clients, as opposed to phishing. Use your existing clients to help you network. Get involved with a particular industry. Um, and the, the next point I'd say, which is the most important thing I would say, uh, and that very few lawyers do, is learn everything you can about your client not just the problem they've hired you to solve. Show an interest in them. They frankly couldn't care less about you. And, and the most interesting thing anybody is ever going to talk mm-hmm. about is themselves. So use that as a basis. Learn everything you possibly can about the client, about the you know, client's personal relationships, about the business, about how the business runs. Learn the lingo of the industry. Once you're, you then use the client to get you introduced to other other potential clients in that industry because your existing client is going to be your best reference mm-hmm. to other people. So it's uh, the other thing I, I point out in the book is, you know, don't expect this is going to happen overnight. This is a long term mm-hmm. game. Uh, and even when you're after new clients, a, a lot of lawyers get very frustrated. They said, you know, uh, they say, I met this person. I sent them an email. I followed up uh, and I'm hearing nothing. Uh, statistics show that before anybody knew is going to send you a, a piece of work, uh, they have to have had contact with you at, at a minimum seven times. Well, that's a lot. So that that seven times could take three months. It could also take mm-hmm. eight years. But if you're the type who gives up after after the first meeting and say, well, nothing came of that, I guess it's a waste, uh, you're going to have more trouble than if you say, okay, this one is something I'm really after. I'm going to figure out ways to continue to get in that person's way. Like, how are we going to cross paths? Where is it going to be? Uh, and over time, because ultimately people will hire you because you've built some kind of relationship. 
and then you just wait. You you just wait for the day when their their existing lawyer makes a mistake, or leaves them high and dry, or has a uh, an unsolvable conflict, and uh, and ultimately, uh, and this is something else I get into in the book. You have to come up with all the different ways there are to be top of mind. Give us some examples. So of that those. when when that moment hits. Um, uh, so, for example, you're uh, you you've got a contact. It's a it's a client you would love to have. They they are represented by an incumbent, uh, but every once in a while, uh, you you call the person uh, or you email them. Uh, or you send them something of interest that you found that you think is particularly applicable to their industry, or you run into them in a networking event and talk to them, and you're not trying to get their work. You're just trying, like, don't worry if you don't get their work. Just build the relationship, because what you want is for the day when they say, you know what, my lawyer, you know, on the last file, I had to call them five times to get the work done and you happen to be calling them now for the eighth time. And it will eventually sink into that contact's head. You know, this guy obviously cares about me much more than my lawyer does. I'm going to give him a shot or I'm going to give her a shot. So that's why you've, you've got to. And if you're doing this with enough people like this, is it, it's, it's very frustrating if you expect that every time you do this, you're going to succeed. My biggest and I write about this in my book, my uh, I, I had a million dollar a year client that I got because I pursued them for, yeah. for five years. And for five years, I got nowhere, like nowhere. But the day I read in the news that somebody was, that a U.S. group was interested in investing in them, I, uh, I got, I, they were in California. I got on a plane. I went down to California. I, I called every contact in the book in California. So I found one who knew the guy. Uh, and, uh, we met and after about an hour, he said, well, you shut, shut up already. You're hired because I knew everything about that company and he knew nothing about it. He was investing in this company. He knew nothing about it. I knew everything about it because I'd been t- trying to get them unsuccessfully for years as a client. The opportunity presented itself. I ended up in a, you know, it was a relationship I had with the company that I have subsequently handed off to, uh, you know, my junior partners who have taken over. But it's a seven-figure-a-year client that came out of five right. years of frustration. That, that's on the one hand where you definitely have to pursue those clients. On the other hand, I, if I recall, in your book, you mentioned how you uh, went after a, a client or or maybe it, it was a lawyer and you said, bring me the business and I'll build the team, which, you know, bring on the business even yes. before you have the expertise, so to speak. And that, that's more fitting to these uh, you know, lawyers starting out. They sometimes have to just take on these files and, and like you did, you just say, we'll figure it out. We'll hire the right people. And maybe this is a good segue into mentorship and, and how you can uh, leverage mentorship as as a junior lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, here And here's what I tell you about mentorship. Uh, don't be afraid to ask. Uh, lawyers in big firms, they are assigned mentors and sometimes they're exactly the wrong people. So uh, don't be... Uh, don't be misled by having an official mentorship relationship with anybody. I think along, along the way, uh, keep your eyes open for people who can help you or can teach you something. And there'll, there'll always be somebody more senior. Not everybody said, will say yes, but many of us will and we'll do what we can to help. 
particularly those of us who feel we, you know, we've taken a lot out of the industry. We have an obligation to give back. But I, I can tell you some of the best advice I got early in my career came from people, you know, a few of them were uh, people who I was just sitting in a networking event and they were the people sitting next to me at the table. And we just started chatting. Uh, so it doesn't have to be very formal. Um, uh, don't be afraid. To, the other thing I'd say, tell people is don't be afraid to ask for favors. Uh, and there's something psychological about that. I'm, uh, I've done some reading on it. Apparently, we, we tend to believe that if we want somebody to do something nice for us, we should start by doing something nice for them. Uh, whereas, in fact, the reverse is true. Uh, if you want somebody to do something nice for you, uh, mm-hmm. ask for a favor. And apparently the psychology of it is anybody who says yes uh, will be will become positively inclined towards you because something in their head is telling them, if I'm willing to do this person a favor, there must be something about this person mm-hmm. I like. I just need to find out what it is. And those people over time you will discover are the people who uh, will ultimately bend over backwards to do all kinds of things for you. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll keep their eye out for you. So... Uh, you know, don't be afraid to ask. Uh, and in, in terms of mentorship overall, uh, that's, you know, that's how you network. So your network will involve asking, uh, asking people for either for advice or to, uh, to give you a hand with something. Uh, it, it, it really could be sometimes it's just to make, would you mind making an introduction to me or, uh, you know, I came to believe, particularly as I advanced in practice, uh, I, I became a huge subscriber to Six Degrees mm-hmm. of Separation. And there was nobody, I, I, I came to conclusion, certainly by the end of my career, there was nobody in the world that I couldn't get to with six yeah. phone calls. As long as, I, as long as I was prepared to invest the time in it. Right up to the head of one of the largest American banks, we were, you know, we, we had an idea and we needed, we wanted to, uh, I wanted to pitch to him. And uh, it, took, it was 15 dead ends, but I finally found a contact who knew somebody who knew somebody, and we were able to, to get the meeting. It didn't work, but we were actually able to get contact. What I'm hearing is you just got to be relentless and chutzpahdik, uh, like you mentioned, and really just uh, do what you got to do <laughs> to meet the right people and, and make it happen. Uh, yeah, uh, the... You know, the, the, the one thing you will learn is that success is in this business is a product of, you know, hitting, hitting your head against the wall a hundred times and, and mm-hmm. never giving up and, and, and re- always reminding yourself that no today mm-hmm. isn't no. It's just mm-hmm. no yeah, today. You gotta keep trying. Uh, like, like they say in sales, you get a, a hundred no's to get to one yes or whatever that. Yeah. And the other thing is mm-hmm. do great work and people will remember. Like, and I get into this in the book as well. It's, there's a huge difference between perception and reality. And as a, if you don't understand that as a lawyer, uh, you can't succeed. It isn't about how hard you work. It isn't about how smart you are. It isn't about what you think about yourself. It's everything is about what people perceive about you. So you really got to... And you don't have to be the smartest. Your client just has to think so. That's brilliant insider advice that you really got to... Worry about the image. Uh, worry about just worry about your and the best way to 
groom your image is to make every single one of your client believe they're the only right. client you're serving. Yeah, and it, I, I completely <laughs> agree with that. And I believe even so, every person you're speaking to should feel like they're the only person in the world you're speaking to give people the time and attention, and especially clients, the service they deserve. That's, that's definitely the way to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, Looking at it from the outside after all your years of experience and now a few years outside of the legal profession, do you see anything that's room for improvement, if you may? Um, you, you mentioned in your book that uh, the, even the compensation structure from the, the, your firm and some big firms went away from the lockstep, which I understand is equal compensation per level of year to a more uh, capitalist approach where you, uh, you know, earn per how much you produce. Um, that, that is one example uh, of perhaps a way that the, the profession has moved away from an egalitarian approach, if you will. Um, do you have that or any other examples of how you think things could be improved, either at a big firm or even a small solo practitioner uh, sort of level? Um, how, how do you think, uh, you know, what would you like to see and, and it would make you feel like, well, that's an improvement? I say, first of all, I'm not going to give any advice to big firms uh, because apart from anything else, they're not going to listen. Um, but I think I'd say for the, the you know, smaller practitioners and mid-size, and mid-size offices, what I would say is uh, your success begins and ends with your ability to communicate. And it's, it, which I'd say is ironic because as lawyers, that that is supposed to be our key attribute, our ability to communicate. And what you discover is we're actually fairly poor to average at it, uh, particularly when it comes to running your firm. Uh, the one thing I, I have discovered as both as a as a leader and as a you know for the one year I sat on the other side of things is it doesn't matter how much you you communicate you're not communicating enough. Is it how you communicate or the and, amount? It seems like the quality is more important than the quantity. Yes, it's it's about the quality. Sometimes it's about the frequency, uh, and and part of it is about understanding human nature, which is if you only have half a story, uh, your tendency will be to fill in the blanks of that story in a way that causes the story to make sense to you. So it may have no bearing on reality, but it's way the way you're making sense out of what you know. And if you can assume, particularly if you're in leadership. Uh, that you know much more than everyone else and that you're, you know, one of your key jobs is to make sure that information gets disseminated. Um, You can succeed. I mean, the other thing is uh, the the process of decision-making. So particularly the the larger the firm is, the more likely it is that decision-making has actually been being made in a smaller and smaller group. Uh, but the, the process of actually making decisions in your business um, is probably what requires the most. Again, it's, it's a skill. Uh, it's, it's about uh, how you move people along. It's about, and as you read in Breakdown, it's, you know, there's, a, there, there's a three different groups in, in the politics of any organization. They're the... There's a group that agrees with everything you want to do. There's a group, there's a group, particularly among lawyers, who will disagree with everything you want to do. And then there's most of the people in the middle who became lawyers because they don't like making decisions and who don't like making mm-hmm. decisions. And the 
the issue in terms of moving whatever business decisions uh, you need to move along are how you sway that quiet majority who mm-hmm. don't want to decide. And then how you, uh, what, what are the politics of uh, then of taking the, the, the negatives and turning them either to new, neutrals or mild positives or, or at least to the point where they, where they won't stop what you want to do. Because ultimately, uh, and you see this as your organization gets, um, gets larger, there's a, an inertia towards doing nothing, towards not changing unless you absolutely have to. Why? Because people are generally comfortable uh, with what they with what they know, uh, lawyers psychologically are low risk takers. They don't like they don't like change. They don't like taking risk. That's why they became, most of them became lawyers. They prefer to analyze risk uh, rather than take it. So when it's your own business, when it's your own firm, and you have to take risks in order to move ahead, what you see is uh, the vast majority of lawyers don't want to take it. So you're. Your obstacles aren't necessarily technological or fiscal. They're all psychological. And it's a, as a leader, it's how do, you, how do you change the psychology of people's thinking so that you can actually mm-hmm. allow things to happen. My take so far, before I leave it, give you the last word, is that to be a good lawyer, you have to be a Machiavellian man. You have to be good at communication, you have to be somewhat of a politician. You have to be a good businessman. And ultimately, you have to understand people with psychology. Uh, you have to focus on service and sales. You really have to do everything to be a good lawyer in today's day and age. That sounds like a lot to chew. And maybe uh, I understand more why now you left and went to writing. Sounds a bit uh, less, less stressful, perhaps. Uh, take it at your own pace. But uh, before, before we... Uh, let it go. Do you have any last words to young lawyers, law students about, you know, growing a bright future in law? Uh, first of all, I'd like to say you, you just said it very well, maybe even better than I could say it. Uh, as a last word, the only piece of advice I would give you is there are going to be moments when you want to give up. Don't. Right. Uh, there, there are going to be moments where you fail. Uh, don't see them as failures. See them as experience to learn from, because every time I've done that in my career, I have ultimately succeeded. It, and it's not going to be linear. It's not going to be in a way you can even imagine. But if you are if you're not managed by your fear, if you're prepared to take risks, if you're prepared to uh, to fail if you're if you're prepared to try something three times and get it wrong before you finally get it right uh you will find over the course of time that you have managed uh, to create a career you could not possibly have imagined when you started and to me that's you know for for a young lawyer i i would say that would be my single most important piece of advice uh, don't worry about where you're going to be in 20 years as long as you're prepared to push yourself and continue to take risks and accept that you are going to make mistakes that you will learn from, you will be 20 years from now in a place you can't imagine today and you will be very happy with it. Thank you so much. Wise words. We look forward to your newest book coming out. I'm sure young lawyers, law students, uh, even up to partner, like you said, and everyone in between will devour it. 
and uh, perhaps we can have a follow-up after that. Great. And thanks for the opportunity to, to, to talk to everyone else. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Congratulations. If you made it to the end of that podcast, you get yourself one professionalism hour CPD approved by the Law Society. For more details, go to the home of this podcast, charneylegal.ca. That's C-A-A-R-N-E-Y legal.ca. You can find me there as well. I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Bye for now.